Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Associated Podcast. Today I'm joined by my wonderful co-host Francesca. Hey Francesca. Hello, hello Tunde, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, it's been a fun week here in Sweden. Yeah, what's been happening? Well, I mean, this weekend I was playing in like a touch rugby tournament and let's just say we won. So yeah, good times. Due to your prowess? Not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was carrying. There's no but... iron team, Tunde, there's no iron. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I was basically absent, but yeah, <laughs> and it's probably for the best. Amazing. What about you? I've just come back from a really lovely holiday. So feeling refreshed and ready to go whilst all my colleagues who have had many deals on last week are exhausted. So um, I feel rather sorry for them, but I'm sure their their holiday time will come. But I think it gives me plenty of energy to welcome Rodney Appiah from Cornerstone Partners. Welcome, Rodney. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Francesca. How are you doing? Yeah. Very, very good. Refreshed and and ready to rumble. So I think first and foremost, what would be amazing is if you could give a little bit of an introduction to yourself to our listeners. Yeah, sure. And and thank you so much, Francesca and Tunde, for inviting me. Really appreciate it. Love the podcast. Big fan. Just in terms of my background, I've been in venture capital slash growth equity for about 10 years or so. So I used to work Foresight Group for about four and a half years. And before that, I used to be a senior investor at the Business Growth Fund, both sort of like late stage VC, early stage growth equity. But I actually started my career in investment banking, so pretty traditional kind of route in and working for an American bank, Merrill Lynch. I was in leverage finance back in 2005, so I got to see the highs and the lows of that product category, which was quite fun. Wasn't my fault, by the way, for the credit crunch crisis. Had nothing to do with it. And then very quickly transitioned into tech M&A and saw the light that I didn't want to be on the sell side anymore and that I need to get to the buy side as quickly as possible. So left in 2011 to make that first jump into private equity. So yeah, that's that's me in a nutshell. Awesome. And uh, I actually share kind of a similar background having spent three years for my sins in well, telecom media and tech M&A before seeing some form of light. Maybe that was sleep deprivation, but it, it's always good to, to meet a fellow banker or ex-banker. Maybe it would be good to to dive a bit deeper into your time at BGF and then also at Foresight, just to learn a bit more about what you were doing there. Yeah, I mean, BGF was a really interesting organization because I, I don't know if, if you guys remember the the context by which it was it was kind of established, but it was just off the back of the credit crunch crisis, right? And so you know the, the economy was very very challenged. The banks were taking an absolute beating by the public as well as by the government. Everybody's blaming the banks for everything, pretty much. House prices were like very, very challenged as well. And the government, and, and actually at the time, it was, I think, conservative government, because it was George Osborne, felt that it was necessary to launch a number of different initiatives to kickstart the economy, right? And so from the dispatch box, he made, I think, 18 or 19 different initiatives. And initiative 18 or 19 was, well, we need an equity fund, and we're going to encourage the four major clearing banks in the UK to put together this capital. And in the end, they managed to convince them to commit 2.5 billion to invest in early stage companies in the UK. And this was great, right? Because if you think about it, it's like got a brand new fund, blank canvas, 2.5 billion. It's kind of like the best startup in the world, like if you think about it, in terms of all the perfect ingredients to really go at it, hammer and tongs, to try and reinvent 
um, private equity for the 21st century. But actually, traditional VC firms and traditional private equity firms were quite sceptical of BGF. I think they they very much saw it as a kind of a quango, as a lender of last resort. There was lots of concerns that it would kind of crowd out commercial smart money. And, you know, I was sort of like brand new into this world of, of private equity and venture capital. And I just saw a job opportunity, if I'm being perfectly honest. And I saw an opportunity to kind of really run out an organisation that was really, really well capitalised, but actually was just ripe for shaping and, you know, when I first joined the firm, they didn't even have an investment process. There was no established investment process. There was no kind of template memo. We hadn't done a deal. There were sort of 13 employees, two offices. And it was really exciting because the, the CEO at the time, who's now the executive chair, a guy called Stephen Welton, he was like, we've got a really unique opportunity to kind of redefine what private equity is and what venture capital is to the UK. And that was something that really excited me. Because I always found that, again, as a sort of an outsider, private equity is being unnecessarily complicated to founders. You know, it's just money. It's just a different form of capital. And he wanted to really distill, like, the bare bones of what sort of equity capital can do for founders, particularly founders outside of London. And that really, really compelled me. So, so I was delighted when I managed to jump through the eight or nine interview hoops that I had to go through in order to land the job. And uh, and yeah, that's when I started my career. Fascinating stuff. Thank you for the story time. I think very few people will probably know that story to such great detail. So thanks for, for downloading that. So specifically in regards to your role, what did it entail? Yeah, so I came in as a sort of like a junior investor. My role was to really basically be the, the bag carrier. So I came in to sort of put the memos together, crunch the numbers, do the modeling, I was basically the number, I like to say that I was the number two, but I think in reality, I was probably the number three or the number four um, in the organization because I was like brand new to it, right? I was brand new to, to product. I didn't know what I was doing. I was making up as I was going along. And I had fantastic people around me, like some really experienced individuals, you know, former consultants, former investors. And, you know, they took me under, the, under the, their wing and just basically taught me the ropes, what to look for in, in founders, don't believe all of the, the pie-in-the-sky stories, you know. They taught me how to be sort of pragmatic but friendly. They taught me how to really get to grips with the market opportunity, really get to grips with the business opportunity. And it was a fantastic, fantastic kind of entry into private equity because it really gave me a sense of what capital can do to really supercharge the growth of these businesses. And uh, it was great. The other great thing about BGF is that they were completely sector agnostic. I guess their thesis was unlocking equity for founders that, frankly, would never have considered productivity or venture capital in the past. And so they saw this huge opportunity of underserved founders across the UK, particularly outside London. So it was very much a kind of original approach to what they did. But their view was that, you know, for those sleepy businesses that are generating two to three million dollars, growing very, very nicely, but have never, ever considered taking on external capital because they wanted to be in control of their own destiny. Could you create a venture capital firm that would be right for them, that they would find attractive? And that was kind of the essence of the BGF model. In many ways, very similar to, to 3i. I don't know if you guys are familiar with 3i, but 3i, very similar model. Where they try to bring venture capital to the masses. And like, I don't know if you've noticed, but I kind of use venture capital and private equity interchangeably. And there's a reason for that. It's because, to my mind, I kind of see it all as one homogenous clump. And I know that increasingly in this world, 
venture capital becoming much more sophisticated about making a distinction between the, the different groupings. But from my perspective, it's it's all the same thing. It's about capital, smart capital to support founders in their quest to grow valuable businesses. Awesome. And given I've always kind of question the like religious debate going around the distinction between like VC and PE and really the only main distinction I see is the prevalence of leverage and like the ownership stakes but it definitely exists on a spectrum and I think now with some of these kind of new funding mechanisms coming in maybe seeing it all as like a class of private money or private capital makes even more sense it would be good to to kind of hear a bit about the transition you made from BGF to Foresight yeah, sure. So um, at BGF, I'd done seven or eight investments. I'd really seen it grow and change as a kind of a vehicle from, as I said, being very much a startup with 13 employees, no investments under management, to the time at which I left when I think they had north of 100 companies in their portfolio. And they had 100 staff plus or, or sort of towards that end. And they had sort of nine offices across the UK. So it become a, a very much a machine. And that journey was great to be part of, but it was also, I think I found myself not lost, but I found myself as not necessarily enjoying it as much as I did before. And I really welcomed the new challenge that Foresight provided. Um, you know, Foresight Group, large, very, very large organization, sort of managing 6.5 billion pounds of, of capital, but it's across both venture capital and private equity on the, on the one side, uh, where they manage VCTs and EIS funds. But on the other side, they also manage effectively an infrastructure business and where they're investing in solar and and other form of renewables. So a very, very different beast to BGF. But there was an opportunity to go and join Foresight to help them really grow their venture capital business. And that was something that really excited me. And and that opportunity came about because of the change to the VCT rules, which basically forced VCT managers to move away from sort of majority control investments towards something more akin to traditional venture capital as we understand it to be so minority investments are between 10 to 30 percent and so what you had is you had an investment team of of you know very accomplished professionals former bankers and consultants that were used to kind of being in control um you know with like 60 70 80 percent stakes in these businesses to a situation where they had to learn how to genuinely partner with founders as a minority investor, and they needed talent to help them to do that. And obviously, given that my background was working in minority investing, I've always done that since, since I joined BGF. You know, it felt like a really, really good good fit for me. So yeah, so I joined Foresight and sort of helped to grow that team, you know, managing two VCT funds and, and also helping them to launch their corporate EIS fund alongside Williams's consultancy arm, which was really cool. So kind of getting involved in engineering-led pre-revenue in most cases businesses not just tackling areas in automotive but actually lots of other areas that that leverage engineering capabilities so for example we backed a business called open bionics which developed these prosthetic limbs really high function prosthetic limbs for very very young individuals that have upper amputations it was great to be involved in that investment like it you know it was profit with purpose and impact and i was also involved in a business called oxford space systems that was seeking to lower the costs of deploying commercial satellites. So really cutting edge stuff. And I I love that kind of intersection of both engineering and tech, but also smart capital coming to bear as well. So no, it was great. It It was a really, really interesting transition 
I also think that the other big change was the culture change. BGF, in many respects, its culture was was developed very, very organically. And I was very fortunate to be part of that process because it was a relatively, as I said, it was a startup environment. So things were very much being developed as and when we got going, which was great. Whereas Foresight was very much an established entity. And I was very much coming in and learning to either assimilate or to apply my kind of take to what they were trying to do. That was a, a very different way of, of sort of working that I had to kind of get used to and acclimatise to. But, but both experiences were fantastic. And before we jump into what happened next, which is arguably, I think, the most interesting thing we'll be discussing today, I'm quite keen to talk about reputation. Because in both cases, where you were working, they were entering the ecosystem at different historical times where VC was uh, maturing in different ways. And I'd be very keen to know from your perspective is that you did quite a lot of what I'd say shaping internally, but I'd love to learn how you made sure that you got to the best deals at the right time when during that period, there were a number of funds that had the reputation. And I think just personally, I've been fortunate enough to work at two venture capital firms that when I arrived had a pretty solid ground layer and a reputation of of being in the market. So I had the luxury of going in and saying, I work at X and founders knowing the fund everyone else in the ecosystem knowing the fund. So yeah, we'd love to hear your, your perspective of that, whether that was an important component of your development within both roles. Yeah, really interesting um, question. And I did give that some thought when I joined both firms. I think a couple of things. One was that with BGF, what really excited me was this idea of actually redefining what venture capital is and how venture capital works with founders. And actually, that's quite a compelling sell to founders. When, when you spoke to founders and they were obviously very familiar with the established brands and the names, some founders had this very clear desire of wanting to work with certain funds, but other founders were quite skeptical of the value that venture capital could provide, right? And they actually were looking for something new, something different, something kind of a bit more disruptive. And I think BGF certainly played a really important role in, in sort of trying to fill that gap. And that was quite exciting because, you know, we didn't have to go in there with any set formula because, as I said, we were a relatively young business and we had flexibility to be able to go in and, and shape the offering to, to kind of meet the needs of the founders that we thought were exceptional. So that was super exciting. With Foresight, I think with Foresight, the key thing with Foresight was to demonstrate that we would work hard for our founders and that we would hustle and that we would have a relatively small portfolio, but we would be very hands-on. And that if you wanted a partner that you could pick up the phone to at 11 o'clock, and have a chat to that we would do that. Whereas, you know, you could get very easily lost in a much larger VC firm that has a portfolio like north of 40 to 50 companies. So the sell with with Foresight was we're with you throughout this entire journey and you can count on us to kind of help you as you navigate all the various opportunities, but also hurdles that you're going to have to overcome. And I think, again, that was also quite compelling for, for founders as well. But I mean, I mean, you guys both know, like, venture capital is incredibly competitive. You know, we're all fighting for the best, the very best founders. What I think has happened, certainly over the last 12 to 18 months, is that the balance of power shifted 
quite significantly in favor of the founders, where the founders are very much holding all the cards in terms of who they want to work with and the value that VC firms have to bring to the table. And VC has to go beyond just being a brand game, you know, and it has to go beyond sort of the, the, the kind of the, the nice and helpful sound bites around value add. It has to be much, much more tangible than that. And, you know, something that I think about a lot in terms of my new venture around, you know, what does real value add look like? And I think real value add is very difficult. It's very difficult to provide at scale. It's very easy if your portfolio is like five to 10 businesses. But if it goes beyond 30, I think if we're being honest with ourselves, it's very, very hard to provide that value add in a way that's meaningful. And so that's the problem, I think, that's, that's really kind of facing the industry. We need to collectively solve it if we want to continue to back great founders. And so you're in a job where you're looking after a small portfolio, which is important to you. You have a young family. Once in a while, you have to take 11 p.m. phone calls. Yeah. It's quite, quite a comfortable situ. But then you decided to bite the bullet. What was the reason behind that? Yeah, I mean, it was crazy. So, so biting the bullet. So, I've, I mean, to be honest, I've always wanted to be in charge of my own destiny. And I've always wanted to pursue an entrepreneurial path. But I was found, to be honest, I, I think I was just too afraid. I was too afraid to be an entrepreneur, which is why I think I've worked in the corporate life for so long. Because up until this point, I've worked at, for three firms, collectively had been around for, what, 14 to 15 years in financial services. And so it felt like I was just hiding. I got to a point where I just felt like I was hiding. And I just thought, well, if not now, then when? And I've got a four-year-old son. And I thought to myself, I kind of probably need to do it now because if I have another kid, there's no chance this is going to happen. <laughs> and, um, and I also thought that if my son Micah was like in his teens, there's no way he's going to let me do it because he's going to just be so demanding on my time. So I thought this is the window of opportunity. And also COVID, I actually, from my perspective, I think was really good timing because it forced everybody, I don't know about you, Tunde, and, and you, Francesco, but I think it forced everybody to be far more self-reflective about actually what is life about? Are you genuinely happy in your job? Are you genuinely doing what you're supposed to be doing? Like, it sounds quite deep, doesn't it? It sounds quite philosophical, but I think a lot of people were kind of sitting at home just thinking about life, and I was doing a lot of thinking myself and thinking, if not now, then when? And so I took the plunge, and I left Foresight, and I, I left because I, I've always had two things in the back of my mind. The first thing that I had in the back of my mind was that we can do venture capital can be better than this. Like, I'm not convinced that the venture capital model that we currently all adopt is the right one. And I think venture capital is crying out for innovation, particularly for a certain set of founders. So underserved founders, diverse founders, whether that's female founders, black founders, Asian founders. Venture capital is not really serving them. I don't think, you know, and there's so much data and research I'm not going to bore you with in terms of a lack of capital that's that's made available to these types of founders. But it, it shouldn't be that way. Everybody has ambition. Everybody has a desire to create fantastic businesses. And actually, when you look at underrepresented individuals, they're the global majority, right? They may not be the majority in the UK, but they are the global majority. And we're increasingly moving towards a, a more interconnected, globalized world. So, Actually, venture capital's failure to see that and identify that, I think it's going to be its own undoing. And I want to be part of the solution. I didn't want to just simply point out that this, this doesn't work. I wanted to come up with an idea and an approach that could potentially 
solve this problem. So that was the first reason why I left. And, and, and just quickly on that, why do you think that there's not enough funding going to underrepresented founders? Because I've heard so many reasons, but I'm sure given that it's been one of your passions for so long, you, you have the best explanation as to why. Yeah, we have a motto at Cornerstone, which is diverse managers unlock diverse deal flow. And what we mean by that is that human beings are creatures of comfort, right? And we, in the main, don't like rocking the boat. I mean, we there is a subset of human beings that will rock the boat, like, casually and just like completely lose it but actually the vast majority of human beings want a relatively easy life and they want to go to a sensible job they want to turn up at nine o'clock they want to leave at five they want to go and see their kids they want to watch something on netflix they want to and they want to go to bed right and those individuals because they want a relatively easy life don't like change and because they don't like change they tend to engage with people that they recognize or people that they know, or people through certain signals, they think that they will be able to know and they think they will be able to like. And because of that, you have a situation where if you kind of translate that to venture capital firms, venture capital firms buy what they know and understand and what they've seen in the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And there's this real reluctance to rock the boat. And LPs are the same. I'd argue that LPs similarly there's a reluctance to engage with emerging managers, even though all the research and the stats suggest that emerging managers outperform. And by the way, it's very obvious why emerging managers outperform, because emerging managers have to outperform, otherwise they're not going to have a job. They're not going to be able to pay the bills. So they're going to have to be much more concerned in their efforts to find the best founders, because they're not relying on management fees. They're not relying on a massive business that's going to look after them no matter what. So all the data is pointing in that direction, that actually, if you seek diversity, if you seek underserved pockets of of deal flow, if you seek emerging managers that need to hustle, need to make it work, you will achieve better returns. But the status quo is to engage with what you know. And so I think that's the reason. I think that's the reason why diverse founders don't receive the fund that they that they probably deserve. Because when you look at the landscape of investment decision makers within venture capital, it's not incredibly diverse. And so as we make the investment landscape more diverse, I think that's going to lead to better, more capital flowing in the direction of diverse founders. And you already start to see that, you know, the increase of female investment decision makers, for example, has led to a meaningful increase in the amount of capital that female founders are receiving. And so there is a correlation between the two. That's the reason that I think you're seeing the trend that we've currently got and how you can address it. The other big thing that I think matters is that there is a narrative that there's a pipeline problem. And I want to kind of preface this by saying specifically that I think VC investors in the main think that there's a quality of pipeline problem with regards to diverse founders. So I don't think they dispute the volume of black founders and Asian founders and female founders that want to launch businesses. I think what they dispute is the capability of those founders to create valuable high growth businesses. And I would argue that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And the reason why it's a self-fulfilling prophecy is that if you don't provide capital at pre-seed and seed to support the experimentation of these businesses, to support the pivoting of these businesses, to enable these founders to kind of develop that execution, track record and experience and competence, 
you're never going to create a pipeline of credible founders that top tier VC firms will want to back. And yet that has happened for non-diverse founders. Well, there's, there's numerous examples of, of serial Caucasian founders that have received rounds and rounds of capital and have had an opportunity to test out different things. They invariably raise much larger rounds of capital than their diverse counterparts, which means that they can make more mistakes, that they have more contingency, that they have a longer runway. And all of these things feed into this vicious cycle where you simply continue to promote the same success stories of individuals from the same backgrounds. So it's a really, really difficult and complex problem to break, but that at the heart of it is the issue. No, I, I think that's a really valid point. I think one thing I'd like to get your thoughts on is another reason I've heard, which is the risk appetite. And you get a lot of founders that if things go wrong, they have people that can support them. And they have a background where they have enough finances to, to say, okay, that was a bit of a mistake. And we can all take that as a, a learning experience. And I can go back with a tail in between my legs into the corporate world and say that was just a learning exercise. There are some subsets of individuals, namely the ones that get invested in, that have the ability to do that with very little consequences. But then you have women, for example, that have a window where they would like to have children. And there's a lot of financial risk involved. <laughs> there's a lot of finance, as I'm sure you're aware, of having a child and for them wanting to make sure that that, that is set in the future for them is important. Equally with single parents or individuals whose parents can't support them or they have had a very successful career path but haven't got that big pot at the end that they can survive off for a certain period of time whilst they raise funds, etc. And when I've thought about this, I'm a bit not um, upset, but I'm a bit helpless as to how the venture capital community can basically include those individuals because it's very risky and it can go wrong and how as a industry can we support those individuals is something that I've thought a lot about because I totally agree with your first two points but please correct me if I'm wrong on the third it means it does rule out a lot of people that have amazing ideas but are scared of that risk and they can't afford to take 18 months out two years out of their life in order to pursue their passion. Yeah, and I think you've hit the nail on the head. And I think the problem I think that we've got, though, is that, as I say, it's this kind of vicious cycle, right? Because if you don't have individuals from underrepresented backgrounds taking that leap to try and create wealth through entrepreneurship, you then don't have a case study. And those case studies then don't inspire the next generation to do the same thing. And more importantly, and this is, I think, something that we see in the US that works really well, you don't have that knowledge that's in the brain and that's in the mind of those individuals to kind of feed back into the ecosystem. And you don't have the capital, the surplus capital that they've generated to also help to seed the next generation of interesting businesses. And so one of the things that we're trying to do at Cornerstone through the establishment of this angel network is to try and create that pool of capital that gives founders from unrepresented backgrounds that opportunity to have a shot, to experiment, to try it out. 
and we're writing checks of between 25,000 to 200,000 pounds and deployed 1.2 million pounds in the last few years into 18 different businesses. And we want that to continue to grow because we, you know, we're only just tapped the surface, right, in terms of the opportunity. We think that there's enough demand to deploy between two to five million pounds at pre-seed and seed into underrepresented founders. And that's the scale of funding that you need in order to create that pipeline you're talking about, Francesca, of really talented founders that are coming out of sort of exceptional universities or, or coming out from really interesting backgrounds. Give them the platform to go out and, and try out these ideas. And it's difficult, but that's that's how you break the cycle. You've got to give these founders the opportunity to try. And the only way you can give them the opportunity to try is to start really, really early, engage super, super early at pre-seed, giving them these checks of capital and say, kind of go away, make it happen. And there's some great work that's being done as well by organizations like Divine and YSYS and, and BYP and OneTech and Black Girl Fest, all these fantastic organizations that are trying to create this community of founders and entrepreneurs and mentors to kind of encourage everybody to engage, to try and solve this problem. This problem is going to take years. You know, it's going to take years to solve. But I'm excited. I'm generally excited. I think the wave of, of talent that's coming through is super exciting. I think give it three to five years and you're going to start to see some incredible founders emerge in the UK building unicorn businesses. And I don't know if you saw the Marshmallow, for example, closed around a 1.25 billion valuation. That deal, I think, was led by Passion Capital, Impact X, and a couple of others. Great business. You know, got to a unicorn valuation in less than four years, led by diverse twins. I mean, it's just a brilliant story. If you saw a problem, you know, no prior experience of InsureTech, but saw a problem, a really innovative problem, and were able to solve it through top-tier VC firms giving them a shot. That's all they needed. So, you know, and there's loads of founders like that that we're speaking to that are going to emerge over the next three to five years. And hopefully they're going to provide the case studies that we all need to encourage that continual flow of capital in that direction. So I think ultimately that's what we need. Brilliant. I, I completely agree. Um, I, I also think that there's probably also a role for more funds, especially at pre-seed and angel stage, to really kind of at least seed the ecosystem. Because one of the things that I found from working in various seed funds and Series A funds is that they're not at the top of the funnel. So you spend all your time doing a, an internship or something at a so-called seed fund, rejecting companies because they're too early. And if you combine that with the lack of friends and family money slash lack of social safety nets, then it really unfortunately becomes maybe the role of either dedicated or hopefully just the wider ecosystem of pre-seed and extremely early stage funds really providing the, the seed capital to get that ecosystem going. I wanted to like segue to one of the things that you mentioned earlier. So you mentioned the Cornerstone Angel Network. And I was just wondering, how does that interact with the fund that you're currently raising? Yeah, great question. So we believe that one of the ways in which you solve this issue, this kind of structural issue that we've identified around funding for Black and other diverse founders is that you need an end-to-end solution. Like it's not enough to just simply launch another fund that kind of will support diverse founders. I think if you really want to solve this problem, you need to provide founders with the opportunity to gain, to get capital, smart capital at every stage of the funding journey. And so to answer your question, Tunde, we want the Angel Group to continue, the Angel Network to continue in its current form 
and reached the point where it's deploying north of a million pounds per year into diverse founders. And that solves, well, it doesn't solve, but it will contribute meaningfully to that early stage problem of providing that first check at pre-seed and seed. But the institutional fund addresses another problem. You know, we did some, we did some research in conjunction with Diversity VC, Bohurst and Engage Inclusivity, that looked at both diverse founders at pre-seed, seed stage, sort of the friends and family stage, but then also diverse founders at the post-seed stage. And what we found is that the founders at the post-seed phase stage were also struggling to raise pre-series A slash series A capital because they couldn't find a lead. So they're a great business. They had the, the right metrics, gaining the right traction, but they needed a lead. There was lots of interest in their idea, but no one was prepared at the institutional level to lead their round. And if they were prepared to lead their round, their rounds were invariably smaller than their non-diverse counterparts. And so at Cornstone, we, we see that as a huge opportunity to kind of launch a, a VC fund, an institutional VC fund with a diversity-focused thesis to help, hopefully, be a lead investor to some of these fantastic founders. You know, the same way that, you know, Harlan Capital in the US has been a lead investor to a number of really talented, diverse founders across the pond. And they started with a I think it was a $40 million fund back in 2018, I believe it was, or 2019. And they're now managing $174 million across two funds. And they've backed more than 35 businesses across the US, by the way. And they've also spurred on a bunch of diversity-focused VC funds that have attracted lots of investment. And you look at their LP base, you've got the who's who's. They've got TPG as their cornerstone investor. They've got Henry Crowley from KKR. They've got Apple. They've got Bank of America. And so there's a real appetite in the US to try and address this problem. And I believe that that appetite is going to come over to the UK as well, UK and Europe. I think obviously the, the key difference between the UK, Europe and the US is that UK and Europe is far more fragmented than the US is. And, you know, the US is huge opportunity, huge population. The black purchasing power alone, forget about the other diverse founders, just the black purchasing power alone in the US is significant, several multiples less of that of, of the equivalents in, in Europe. So I can understand why the trend has started over in the US. But we see that trend coming over into the UK. And coming back to your question, Tinder, I think, to solve this problem, you need an end-to-end investment solution. You can't simply pick one stage of the funding cycle and hope that solves the problem. It, it won't. You've got to provide funding for diverse founders from pre-seed all the way to Series A. And that's what we're hopefully going to try and do. And we think that actually having that hybrid model of both a retail solution at pre-seed, where you've got sophisticated angel investors are prepared to put their money where their mouth is and also can provide support and be that friends and family round. Like we always say at Cornerstone that, you know, the angel network is effectively trying to be the rich uncle that diverse founders don't have. You know, that's what we want to do. We want to be your rich uncle to give you that first check. But then you also need the institutional capital to take you to that next stage to kind of invite other co-investors with specific expertise in certain areas you need the marrying of the two in order to really create fantastic businesses. So let's see if it works, but that's that's kind of the current thesis. I think it's going to work. Thanks, Francesca. <laughs> <laughs>
But I'm conscious that I cut you off, actually. And we went down a very interesting rabbit hole of one of the reasons was that you spotted this gap in the market. But there was a second point as to why you wanted to raise your own fund. Yeah, I think the second point around why I wanted to raise my own fund was kind of come back to the point I made earlier, offline Francesca and Tunde, which was around, can you add value to a founder at scale? If you were going to try and do it, how would you do it in a way that was credible? And I think that that is the key question within our industry. Like I speak to founders nearly every day. And every time I end the call, I always say to them, "Is who's doing it well for you? Like I spoke to a founder then, I said, what does a good VC look like to you? And she said something really, it actually took me back because it was so simple. She said, a good VC is someone who basically does what they say they're going to do when they say they're going to do it. That was it. She didn't want anything more than that. It was simply that, that a good VC just basically delivered what they promised that they were going to deliver. And it made me realize there's this huge disconnect between what VCs sell and what VCs deliver. VCs are very good at branding, very good at marketing, PR. We can talk till the cows come home. We're great on panel discussions and webinars and can really tell the story around our investment thesis. But there's a real disconnect when that translates to completing investment into a founder and then supporting that founder through both the peaks and the troughs of their journey. And I was just thinking through, how can you do it? And I understand why it's so difficult for VCs to be able to deliver that because one of the things that VCs all share is that we're incredibly time poor. You know, we're bombarded by opportunities and it's our job to sift and to filter and to identify what we believe to be the winners, right? And... What we forget sometimes is that as we're sifting through, there's this huge tail that's being underserved and they don't know where to go. Like, where are they going to go? They've, they've, they've received a no from Tunde or from Francesca. And like, <laughs> like the next step is, like their next step is a brick wall, basically, because they don't know where else to go. And it's quite a soul-destroying experience for them. Now, I'm not saying that VC firms need to solve that problem. I'm just saying that that's the experience that they encounter. And you can imagine for diverse founders, it's like a multiplier of that feeling. So one of the things I, we're thinking about at Cornstone is how do we solve that problem in a way that's scalable? And then for the businesses that we, we do back, how do we help them as best we can? How do we give them the best possible chance of succeeding? And one of the things that came out from our research report is that diverse founders don't suffer because of a lack of financial capital they suffer because of a lack of social capital they suffer because they don't have the same networks they don't have the same warm introductions the same strategic conversations that one needs to take a business from two million of revenue to 20 million of revenue over the next two to three years right so that got me to think about a question which is how do you replicate social capital for any founder with a great idea and there's some great organizations that are trying to do this. Like, I don't know if you guys are familiar with NFX, for example. They're a network-driven VC fund. And their whole strategy is around networks, all around community-driven networks, where they very, very heavy on making the right introductions at the right time to the right founder to help them supercharge their growth. That's something I really like the idea of that. I'm just trying to think about how do you take that step forward? Like, how do you go beyond just an introduction to mentoring, to coaching, to like a more sustained relationship that really engages and supports a founder 
for the life of their investment to go beyond just the boardroom and the board pack and the NED just showing up once a month, right? How do you go to something that's much more fluid, something that's much more akin to having a friend that just happens to have a fantastic Rolodeck of contacts? That's something that we're kind of, I'm not pretending like we've got the answer, but that's something that we think about a lot at Cornerstone. Like, how can you create that at scale? Because I think if you solve that problem, then you really start to create a far more equitable investment landscape for any founder, irrespective of background, to be able to succeed. That is a brilliant answer, Rodney. And that leads me on to my next question of you are mentioning we quite a lot and back to there's no I and team, there's four of you making your network even broader, which is fantastic. But I think it takes a lot of courage to start up your own fund and finding people to do it with you is probably a huge support to you both mentally and also raising funds. And I'd like to learn how did you meet these people? Because I meet founders who are looking for a co-founder. I'm sure it's equally the same with general partners looking for other general partners to pair up with. And we had the good fortune of speaking to Matt Pennycard, who is with Czech Warner at Ada Ventures, which is fantastic. And that was quite an easy answer. They work together. So I would love to hear the story of how you met your partners. Yeah. And I'm so happy you asked this question because there's some quite interesting stories here. So the first one is, well, one of them is my brother. Um, so that that made it quite easy. And actually, well, it made it easy, but super it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> it made it super easy, but it was also quite surprising because I never thought I would ever work with my brother. Like me and my brother absolutely hated each other growing up, like genuinely. So like a year apart. And when I say yeah, I mean literally <laughs> apart. We're like we both have a birthdays in October and you know we're a year and a few days apart. And um Goodness, your mum was busy then. <laughs> yeah, she was. Two under one, practically. That's that's a lot. Exactly. And she made it worse by, like, dressing us up as twins. Because I think she always wanted twins. And that just infuriated us because <laughs> we were a good year apart. But yet, we had the same clothes. And it was, it was pretty embarrassing. So embarrassing. <laughs> Absolutely. So, like, yeah, we hate each other. But, but interestingly, when, when he got married, because it was always his fault, not my fault. When he got married, he calmed down. And I think that's when we started to see an opportunity for the two of us to work together, which was good. But, but um, what I want to know is that have you got matching merch now? So it's gone full circle. <laughs> it's gone full circle. Now, now you're all dressing the same with cornerstone partners on your caps and your T-shirts and your... your <laughs> you know what? That's such a great yeah. idea. We should, we should and pyjamas. And your mum will be thrilled. <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. She'll be so happy. Um, so yeah, so so my brother's part of the team. And and actually one one thing, one question I had for you guys is I know you want me to talk about the investor team, but often VC investors are very kind of hesitant backing husband and wife teams. And I actually love backing husband and wife teams. I don't know about you guys, but I absolutely love it because I think, you know, they've got so much to lose not staying together. And if you think about if you think about it, they've got like they've probably had loads and loads of arguments they've still had to stay together because they've got kids they've probably got a very intertwined financial background because they've got a house and all the various kind of assets so why wouldn't you back a husband and wife team and actually at cornerstone we've backed a couple a couple of husband and wife teams and they're great they're great because they kind of just work through the problems and 
And the reason I ask the question is because like often when we're, when we're fundraising, we're speaking to LPs. Some LPs absolutely love the fact that if there's two brothers on the team and others really hate it. Like they're very, very concerned about there being two brothers on the team because it's almost like, you know, one point of failure. Like if they fall out, it's going to turn really, really badly. But the one thing about my brother is that I know all of his bad habits. Like I really know them like intimately. And so there's nothing he can do can surprise me, which I think is really important. And also what's great is that he's not from a VC background. And that's one thing that we're really proud about at Cornstone. Like we've got a team of four of which two individuals have a venture capital background and two don't. And that was intentional because I don't think VCs have a monopoly on, on great investment decision making. I think you need to have that kind of range of perspectives. And, you know, we're going to continue to have that kind of rollout through our entire business in terms of having entrepreneurs, having operators, having individuals coming back this problem from very, very different walks of life. Because I think that drives better decision making. Like you, you want to have different perspectives around the table. You want to have good challenge. You don't want groupthink. I think sometimes because we're kind of taught to think a certain way in venture capital, that tends to happen. Somebody with a very powerful voice can sway a room in an investment committee very, very easily. And I think we're trying to move away from that because I think that doesn't necessarily lead to the right decisions. So yeah, so we've got a team of four. So my brother, we've got another guy who's a, a consultant who formerly worked for UBS. Again, has got kind of a fintech background, but also is, interestingly had a number of side hustles in the media and entertainment industry. And then we have a female venture capital investor who remains unnamed, but will be joining us shortly. But she comes with a very interesting skill set and highly complimentary to my own. She's been a family friend for a number of years now. I feel like I've known her for like 20 years plus. She's always been there, almost like my sister. It has a very family feel to it, which is which I think is good. And I think we complement each other really, really well. Great. And it's it's good to hear a bit about the entire team. I also have a brother who is slightly more like a year and four months older than me. Um, and my mum also wanted twins and basically named us almost the same thing and dressed us the same. Fortunately, we had a much more kind of cordial relationship. He was, he was much larger than me. So uh, <laughs> I kind of opted for friendship. Um, but but no, it's uh, good to hear that someone shares my pain. Uh, maybe uh, one, one last question about the fundraise. I'd just love to hear a bit about how it works. I mean, Francesca and I, I guess, both work in venture funds, but we've never had the privilege of trying to actually raise one from LPs. So it would be great to get a, at least a whistle-stop tour of what that looks like. Great. That's a, you know what? That's a great podcast idea as well. So, you know, your four-part series on um, venture capital interviews, which I absolutely loved, by the way, because it taught me a few things. Um, you should podcast series on how to raise a VC fund. It would be amazing, honestly. <laughs> and I'd be happy to contribute. Yeah, I think is. you should do it. I, think, <laughs> I don't think Tunde or I, we're well-versed in <laughs> interviews, but not to LPs. So we are going in very blind on that interview. That yeah, well, I can't do it now because I haven't, haven't quite closed yet. But um, yeah, when <laughs> I do close, hopefully soon, I, I'm happy to contribute. To answer your question, how do you go about doing it? So... That is a great question. How do you go about raising a VC fund? So I think the first thing you've got to do is you need to have 
real conviction. This sounds like a very glib answer, but genuinely, you need to have real conviction because if you don't, you will give up within three months of trying to raise the funds. Because basically, every time you speak to an LP, and an LP, just for those who are listening, is a limited partner, basically an investor in your fund. They have very strong ideas about how to make money, which you would expect, right? Because they're all very, very wealthy. So they've got very, very, very clear ideas about how to make money. And if you don't have very high levels of conviction, you'll go from LP meeting to LP meeting, changing your pitch, like quite a lot. And we very much did that in the first, I'd say, three to four months of fundraising. We were kind of like trying to shimmy and keep pushing our idea to kind of fit the kind of requirement of the LP. But you can't do that. Like ultimately, LPs respect you for kind of standing your ground and saying, actually, no, this is what we're trying to do. I'm not saying don't listen to feedback. Listen to feedback. And especially with like 15 LPs tell you the same thing, they probably have a point. But don't be so willing to just completely throw out your investment thesis. You know, what makes your investment thesis interesting is because it's different. Don't just be another tech-focused fund that wants to find, that's not particularly interesting. Like, pursue a different thesis, pursue a different strategy, because that's what's going to ultimately unlock alpha. So that would be my first thing. High conviction, high conviction, high conviction. Second point is, it's all about the team. And, And obviously, what's tied to it is track record. But if your team isn't right, then you're going to find it incredibly difficult to raise your first fund. And I would say, whilst in the US, being a solo GP is a thing, so being one partner that runs a fund, in the UK and Europe, they absolutely hate the concept. Unless you're kind of like a rock star VC that comes out of a, a, a top tier VC firm and your track record's insane. And even then, it's really, really difficult. I would say, absolutely look at a team of two. And ideally, no more than four. So I think a two to four team size is ideal for your first fund. The team needs to be highly complementary and the track record collectively needs to be really compelling. And it needs to ideally align to your investment thesis. So I think that's a really important element as well. So high conviction team, and I'll give you one final point and, and then kind of save some more for the podcast series that's coming. The third point that I think is really important is You've got to demonstrate that, and like Czech says this a lot. So Czech at Ada Ventures, who's a good friend of ours, says this a lot, which is you need to act like a fund before you are a fund. LPs don't like backing blank sheets of papers and they don't like backing concepts. They like backing firms that are kind of already operating. A lot of LPs will say we back first-time funds, but not first-time managers. And that's so, so true. You will very rarely find an LP that's prepared to back a first-time fund manager and a first-time fund. They want to see you demonstrate some semblance of being able to pull together a portfolio, source deal flow, some semblance of portfolio construction, some semblance of how you add value to those businesses post-investment. Obviously, at Cornstone, we've been able to kind of demonstrate that through our angel network. Even though it's a relatively small fund, it is in effect a fund because we've deployed 1.2 million of other people's money and they've entrusted us to try and manage it in a certain way. So, that, that element is really, really important. So those are the three. High conviction, team, and operate as if you're already a fund. But if you guys have another five hours, I could give you so much more detail about the process that I'm sure I bore you to death. The other thing as well that people don't tell you about, I'll just I'll drop in an extra point which I think is really important, is that LPs hate being discovered. 
they're incredibly secretive individuals, right? <laughs> they really are. They really are. They absolutely hate being approached. And if you approach them, they're like, how the hell did you get my email? I mean, they do not like surfacing from where they operate in. They really love their secrecy. Secrecy is incredibly important to them. And so you have to work very hard to find out who they are. And you do that through a combination of asking other fund managers that have done it, you do that through basically getting a LinkedIn premium account. You do that through you do that through um, speaking to founders who've received capital from high net worths, who potentially might invest in funds as well. Like, and then you basically what happens is that over a period of time you start to build this list, and it just gradually builds. And like before you know it, you've reached out. Like we've reached out to like north of 120 LPs. So that's the kind of the sheer volume of LPs that you need to approach in order to kind of make a fund work. Um, because there's so many LPs that you approach that will just say no because they either don't have the money at that particular moment in time or because your strategy doesn't match their strategy or they don't like you or they're, that you've caught them at the wrong time. There's so many different reasons. Like sometimes it's completely irrational. And so it can be a really bruising experience. and You've just got to be incredibly resilient. You've got to be incredibly disciplined you've got to respond super quickly got to book the meetings like it's it's just it's just intense well I can't wait for the mini series (laughs) so interesting and I think it's really important to highlight because I think sometimes founders everyone in the network they see VCs on a pedestal with all the power and I think by no means are they perfect but I think sometimes it gets underappreciated how hard they have worked in order to get that pot of money and how stressful that is and how they have to deal with a lot of people above them dictating what they should and shouldn't invest in and getting stick that that company didn't work and their reputation hanging by a thread based on the associates and and principals and everyone else working underneath them, the responsibility of that. So I think it's really important to highlight that it's it's by no means a walk in the park to gather LPs around you. As you said, I love that, that they're so secretive, right? <laughs> we, we almost have the luxurious position um, of, of founders screaming uh, <laughs> 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 that they're available and it's complete flip up the ladder. But I think you mentioned their team and... The question we always ask to our guests is whether they're hiring at the moment. So are you hiring at the moment? We are. We are hiring interns. We Fantastic. really need some interns. And so if you're really hungry about entering the world of venture capital, you're interested in backing diverse founders, we would love to hear from you guys. It's really simple in terms of how to apply. Just send me an email. So it's rodney at cornstonepartners.co.uk. That's rodney at cornstonepartners.co.uk. And we'd love to have a chat. We're we're hiring for a number of different roles at the moment. And we'd love to see some really talented individuals reach out. It'd be be fantastic. And are there any other types of people that you would like reaching out to you? Um, LPs, please. (laughs) We'd love to speak to LPs. Anyone who's interested in our mission to back exceptional, diverse founders, we would love to have a conversation with you. And I think we're going to be in Berlin for a kind of a conference. So 
hopefully anyone's listening in Berlin or Germany, love to have a kind of a chat with you guys there as well. But yeah, anyone who's interested in learning more about what we do, that'd be great. We're also, with our angel network, we are opening up for the first time to semi-opening up to the public, certain criteria around it. But anyone who's interested in learning more about what we do, just go onto our website, www.cornstonepartners.co.uk. And you can just sign up your details to be informed of, of some new announcements as and, as and when they come, which is great. We really want to expand our network this year. So that's super exciting. And obviously the final thing, but the most important thing, are founders. We love speaking to founders. It doesn't matter what stage you're at. If you'd love to speak to a potential investor, just reach out to us. Honestly, I will respond very quickly. My email address is Rodney at cornerstonepartners.co.uk or you can ping me a message on LinkedIn. I'm probably, you know, cards on the table. I'm not very good on LinkedIn, but send me an email and I will respond. So yeah, great founders. Reach out to us. I would love to have a chat. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us, Rodney. That was so much fun. And it was amazing learning about your mission, your journey and everything else in between. Thank you so much. That was a pleasure. Thanks, Francesca. Thanks, Sunday. Thank you, Rodney. And would like to say thank you to our listeners. If you want to get in contact with us, you can follow us on Twitter at associated underscore pod, as well as reach out to us via email, which is associatedpodcast at gmail.com. Also, please remember to subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Bye.